Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Ian McAlpine was born in Campbell River in 1936 and lived there until 1947, when his father, a policeman, was transferred up the B.C. coast to the mill town of Ocean Falls. So it was in those early Campbell River years that through his father, he met the local magistrate, Rod Hake Brown. Ian was also in the same elementary school as Rod's daughter, Valerie. At the age of 11, Ian and a couple of friends started Ocean Falls' first newspaper, the Ocean Falls Reporter, and thus began his career in print. He graduated from high school in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. After a year at the University of British Columbia, he returned to Saskatchewan to join the Star Phoenix newspaper as a general reporter in 1956. He jumped around a bit, including a year at CFQC in Saskatoon, a year at the Daily News in Nelson, and then back to the Star Phoenix. September of 1961 found him at the Vancouver Sun, where he wound up covering the courts before working the Legislative Press Gallery in Victoria. In 1968, he left the Sun, went back to UBC, and graduated from law school in 1971. He practiced law in the Fraser Valley until appointed a provincial court judge in 1979. He served 25 years, retiring from the bench at the end of 2004. Ian, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you. Pleased to be here. You've got a reading for us from the month of May. Yes. This is where Roderick Haig Brown described his role as a magistrate, a lay magistrate. That is to say, he didn't have formal legal training. And this is what he said. A magistrate is much more on his own than are the judges of the higher courts. He has no jury to help him decide guilt or innocence. Lawyers rarely appear for either side, so he must depend largely on his own knowledge of law and procedure without the close check that able lawyers can offer. Accused people rarely make the best of their own defense. Prosecuting officers are usually experienced and skillful, so it is often a magistrate's duty to bring out the defense by direct questions and by cross-examining prosecution witnesses. 
In the simplicity of rural courts, a magistrate keeps his own full record of the evidence in longhand. Apparently, he may use a fountain pen, but I suspect that with a little effort, one could dig up a law somewhere stipulating a goose quill. While doing all this, he must also keep control of his court, carefully follow the niceties of procedure, gauge the demeanor of witnesses, protect them from unfair cross-examination, ensure that inadmissible evidence is excluded, and then, having split his faculties in these various ways, he is left alone to reach his decision. From personal experience, May is the month in measure of the year, or one of the months, that really stands out for me because I think it is Haig Brown, perhaps at his most articulate If you sit somebody down and say to them, what's involved in being a magistrate? I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody maybe who does it better than Haig Brown spells out in that passage you read and elsewhere in this month. It's quite something. Yes, it is. And it is a very accurate summary of of the role of a a judicial decision-maker. And it comes from a person who does have a Doctor of Laws degree from the University of British Columbia, but it's an honorary one. He has no formal legal training. But it just shows what a remarkable man he was in understanding almost everything he did. And being, as I think would be important, uh, such a student of human nature, I guess, through experience, as is the best we can all hope for. Yes, and it's it's also that he was a conservationist, of course, too, and was the subject of his books. But he was a really a country gentleman. You take the subject matter of all of his books, his house above tide, and everything he did around the river. Quite remarkable. And uh, he, even early on, marveled at the fact that he was able to acquire his house because he didn't have much money. Well, let's let's go early on for Ian McAlpine now. Born here in 1936, spent your first 11 years in Campbell River. When you think back to those early years, what sort of memories come to mind? Obviously, it was a very different place than it is now. Oh, yes. I left there 75 years ago this year, and uh, I've only been back on two occasions uh, since that departure. It was a very small town. Um, as you know, I've forgotten the population, 1,500, 2,000, something like that. And it was really two towns. There was Campbell River itself, which was a village, I believe, and Campbellton. And, of course, uh, Mr. Haig Brown lived in Campbellton. I don't know if they still call it that, but it's just probably all one place now. One of the things I remember about Campbell River is the beehive. I don't know if you know the beehive. Oh, yes. Still there? Still there, but under a different name now. Oh, yeah. And it was at the head of the of the public dock. And uh, as you know, and on the opposite side of that access out onto the dock was the Cross and Vanstone store. That's where all the shopping was done. Apart from a few small places, there was a bakery and there was a meat market. I remember the meat market particularly uh, because my father had a dog called Tarzan. Was a Great Dane. In the police world, Tarzan was the policeman's backup. And Tarzan one day went down to the meat market and helped himself to some uh, very expensive steaks. <laughs> <laughs> so that was big news in Campbell River. 
when the police dog finds himself in trouble with the law. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that was quite remarkable about the, the place, too, in those years, uh, there was very little development up beyond the foreshore. There was the odd road that uh, went sort of perpendicular out of town from that access, but the edge of town in that direction was right behind our, our home, which was in the police station, just at the start of the small hill into, into town. And that was called the back road. And that was it. And I remember the first people that bought a house up there or built a house up there. It was a family by the name of Kaberski. And they were the first people there. That was Camel River. A good place to grow up in? Oh, yes. We did all the um, youthful things. Um, they built a theater there at one point and shortly thereafter tried to raise the prices. Uh, and uh, uh, children uh, in the town uh, conducted an open-air protest there and uh, the theater backed down. It, uh, <laughs> it was good. Uh, I remember my hijinks there. I, I uh, fractured my uh, left leg on the beach in front of the beehive by playing with logs and so on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, silly things like that. It, it was just a good place to be, really, and have fond memories of many things there. You were born here in 36, not too long, actually, after the Hague Browns arrived here. Just a, a few years. Yes, that's right. Um, th that rather surprised me, too, in reading Measure of the Year. He worked up country on the island and, and logging and fishing prior to that, but not very long. It surprised me that I think he bought his house, the, 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 uh, the Above Tide house, around 1934, something like that. Yeah, that, of course, I do remember. And on both occasions that I've been back since, I, I've driven out to the place and just to renew old memories. <laughs> Tell us about your father and his position as a policeman. Milt was Campbell River's second policeman, is, is what I've been told. Was also involved in the fire hall and other emergency services. Kind of a one-size-fits-all when the community is small enough, I suppose. Yes, that's right. He, he belonged to the Kinsman Club there. And the Kinsman Club, I think, bought the first ambulance from a manufacturer in Victoria. I remember going down with my dad to, to pick it up and uh, going over the Malahat, which wasn't much of a highway in those years. Yes, he went there in 1933 as a constable. And as I recall from memory um, more recently, there was another officer there by the name of Corporal Dawson, and my dad served there with him. Now, Corporal Dawson had some kind of uh, an illness that claimed his life. And uh, so my dad was there for a short while by himself and his pal Tarzan. This would have been pre-RCMP days? These were BC police, were they? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The BC Provincial Police, of course, was established uh, long before the RCMP was, in fact, and served in all kinds of posts around the province. But then, not too long after my arrival there, of course, the war broke out and there were a lot of service people and uh, military people um, up and down the coast because of these uh, balloon bombs that the Japanese uh, people sent over and so on. And uh, so it was quite a busy place. And in that regard, too, call-outs to various things. 
And then another thing I recall, I think it was 1939, there was a serious wildfire outbreak up in the camps um, beyond the Campbell River. I know uh, my, my father spent a fair bit of time out there because some of the firefighters that were uh, tackling these uh, bushfires were sabotaging uh, the firefighting equipment so that they could maintain their jobs. So that was another big ticket item for the police. And then uh, there was a police boat there, stationed there, and it was stationed just downstream from the Hague Brown House at the spit, partly because it was very secure, uh, safe moorage for the boat. It was about a 34 or 36-foot uh, boat, PML-9, and the water was, the salt water was diluted somewhat, which, of course, made it easier to maintain the thing without barnacles on it. And it was just not too far from the Taiyi Pool. I remember it quite well. I, I did a fair bit of traveling on that boat out uh, to Cortez and Quadra Island and uh, Phillips Arm and various places because the police were sort of like government agents at that time. They did all kinds of things for the government besides regular police work. So how big an area would your father have been covering? What was the jurisdiction? Well, he went down uh, south to, uh, I can't remember the river name now, there was a hotel on the river uh, south of town. And uh, it was sort of the dividing line between uh, the Courtney District and the Camel River District. That would be the Oyster, the Oyster River. Yes, yes, it'd be, it was the Oyster River. As I recall, when we left our home, which is sort of opposite the fishing pier now, it rose up the hill to, I don't know, an elevation of perhaps 100 feet and ran along above the, the ocean and then went downhill to the foreshore area again by the big rock. And this place was uh, a few miles south of there. And I believe the proprietor was a fellow by the name of Jim English. And as I say, the the southerly area on the water was close to Powell River. And he didn't attend in those areas. There was a boat station there in Powell River called the PGD-2, which was a fish and game boat. And it did dual purpose as a, as a police boat and so on. So it, it was out of his area. Yeah. So among the many things he would have been doing, of course, was he would have been interacting with the magistrate in the area being Rod Hig Brown. And I get the impression that's, that's how you came to meet the magistrate. Can you take us back those days? Yes. Well, I didn't have a lot of contact with him. I uh, went out fairly frequently to his house with my dad. Uh, sometimes my father would pick me up at the school and he'd carry on out to see Mr. Hig Brown and uh, do whatever he had to do there, uh, such things as uh, seeking warrants and, you know, for arrest and various and sundry things. And, and I usually stayed in the car and uh, while well, he did his thing and but I became aware early on, not so much that he was a magistrate. Well, indeed, in my very youngest years, he wasn't. But I certainly knew about his writing. My introduction to uh, to that was uh, one of his very, very early books, uh, I think the early 1940s, called Starbuck Valley Winter. 
when I received that from him, he autographed it for me. Yeah? To Ian, who knows the country Don lived in, that was the principal uh, young fellow on Starbuck Valley Winter. How did it come to be that he was actually writing you an inscription for this book? Obviously, because he knew your dad. Oh, yes, yes. And, of course, it, it sort of goes without saying that everybody who lived in Campbell River knew where Starbuck Valley Winter was, <laughs> or Starbuck Valley. Let's touch on, then, your your introduction to Haig Brown through his writing from Starbuck Valley Winter. You moved on through his writings. You had other favorites as well. Yes, another favorite was Saltwater Summer. And, of course, that was the, the same principle as it was Don Morgan. Don Morgan had uh, had such a successful trapping year, trapping Martin up in Starbuck Valley, that he had enough money to buy a fish boat, commercial fish boat. And so uh, two or three years later, Saltwater Summer came along, and it was just a continuation of Don Morgan. Now, one of the interesting things about Haig Brown, I don't know that a lot of writers do this, but he's well known not only for his youth literature, but also, of course, for very serious adult literature as well. You would have first met him through the books targeting a younger generation, but of course, as time goes on, you'd have graduated, I guess we'd say, into A River Never Sleeps and Measure of the Year, those works. Yes, and Return to the River. and uh, I didn't read them cover to cover either. I um, I read certain fishing passages. You, you could learn to fish from his, his writings, of course, and uh, that's what attracted my attention there. Let's back up again. You lived in the police station? Was that essentially? Yes. The police station was your domicile in those days, and that also served as the courthouse. Yes, courtroom, I would say. Um, <laughs> Yes, house is a bit generous, I guess. Yeah, yes. That must have been a fascinating place to grow up in. Did you have occasion to see the magistrate in action? <laughs> no, I did not. I saw some of his um, customers in action. They were a rowdy bunch, and um, I shouldn't say this, but I can tell you that uh, sufficient time has passed that uh, quite often uh, there were... Uh, people in the cells uh, who perhaps were inebriated and so on and so forth, and they banged the cells. It was, And they were hollow. It was a freestanding cell, metal ones. There were many nights that we were awakened and uh, from our sleep, and uh, these people would carry on and on. And my dad, he would go down and tell them to smarten up or else. And when it came to the or else, he'd strip them of their clothes, take them out into the backyard under a cherry tree, and hose them down. It worked well. <laughs> I can only imagine how fascinating it must have been to grow up in such an environment. Yes, it was uh, interesting. Did your father stay in touch with Haig Brown at all? You moved away to Ocean Falls in, in 1947. Yes. The two of them wouldn't have had so much in the way of dealings at that point. No. Or maybe less so? I'm not sure. Yes, I, I don't know that they had any, really. Um, and, and on top of that, uh, Ocean Falls is very isolated, as you perhaps know. Where there are no roads, uh, no way out except the boat type of thing, and which didn't stop a Camel River at the time. So I, I think, apart from uh, just general knowledge about what Mr. Hay Brown was doing, 
which appeared in various journals and so on. And I doubt that he had contact with them. I was going to ask, in measure of the year, Mr. Higbaum makes reference to Corporal Tennyson, urging him to take on the role as magistrate. And Corporal Tennyson was uh, with the BC police there, according to this story. My question is, do you know if Corporal Tennyson was a pseudonym like Elkhorn was Campbell River? That's a very good question. I personally do not know, but could well be a relatively safe supposition because we, as you say, we have Elkhorn rather than Campbell River. Yeah. Maybe that was indeed the case. Yeah. Interesting. Because my thought is that it could have been my father that spoke to him. Indeed. That's a fascinating thought. My father was in charge of the detachment there at the, at uh, about the time of the appointment, and I just wondered if if that might have been the case. But uh, times passed; we'll probably never know. There wouldn't have been too many other policemen there, would there? Was it normally two people? Yes, two, maybe three. It rose up. We left in forty-seven. Uh, there were probably four or five there, maybe. The RCMP uh, assumed the uh, the BC police or, or absorbed it uh, in 1950, August of 1950. So um, I don't know who was there in that three-year interlude after we left. But your father would have been in charge back around 1940 or prior uh, to that, which is uh, 1940 is, is when Haig Brown started as a magistrate. Yes. It sounds as though the man in charge of the police station is probably a very good suspect for the person who who talked Haig Brown into it. Yes, I think so. Possible anyway. I did have a, a call from a, a deputy sheriff in Campbell River. I can't remember the year, probably 1970-ish, where they had unearthed some of uh, Mr. Haig Brown's bench notes in a storage area of the old police station. Uh, at that time, it, it was no longer the police station. It was the conservation office, I think. And then the only other connection that I had with the building, my father died in 1990. Shortly thereafter, uh, I took uh, my mother and my sister up to Campbell River, and we stayed in our old house. It was a bed and breakfast then. But the bed and breakfast part of the of the house was uh, where we lived. So we got to uh, spend the night in our respective bedrooms that we'd had years before. That must have been interesting. And you no longer had to worry about people banging on the bars or getting hosed down out back. <laughs> That's right, yes. And the, and the other difference was that I shared my bed with my wife, unlike earlier times. <laughs> So let's go back to, to the month of May in Measure of the Year, where Hig Brown writes so eloquently about the job of the magistrate. Do you recall your impressions when you first came across these passages? Yes, I, I had a, a very definite reaction. I was impressed firstly by his description of how he carried on in court, but I was also quite taken by his experience out of court. The things that he tended to out of court on an absolutely unofficial basis, 
wouldn't be tolerated today. He was an advisor, almost a lay lawyer, in family matters and so on, out of court. He allowed people to go to his house and discuss family problems they had and to take advice from him and so on, which is, of course, back in the old days, it's not tolerated now. But the anomaly of this is that what he did unofficially, recognizing that he might head things off and smooth things over and get them resolved, are now incorporated officially as part of the procedure in the provincial court. And these are the pre-trial procedures. We have pre-trial conferences and discuss things. And, and this is done by judges informally out of court, but within a hearing setting, a hearing area. A judge will go into some of these types of hearings and discuss how the cards lay and uh, what might happen if it went to trial. And of course, the parties that appear before the judge are told, well, if it does go on to court, it will be a different judge. This is just absolutely what Mr. Hay Brown was doing. He was telling people, look, if you go to court, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and, and heading things off at the pass. And the fact that he would do that, unusual. Another example of him perhaps being ahead of his time. Absolutely. And there's so many examples of that. As you know, if you've read Measure of the Year, he had a great deal of empathy for Indigenous people as he met them in his role as a magistrate. Indigenous people were not permitted to have liquor. And he thought that was unfair because the white man could. And he said in so many words that these were matters that were going to be dealt with and sorted out and resolved in the years ahead. And that's exactly where we are now. Can you remember how old you were when you first read this passage? Were you a journalist at that point? Had you gone into law? No. This book, Measure of the Year, was, uh, was written, I think, in 1950. And Mr. Haig Brown said that he'd been a magistrate for almost 10 years at that point, and that he was appointed at age 30. And he thought that was young. He thought that magistrates should be old and wise and gray. And he was 30. He held the position for 35 years, I believe. So he, he, he grew into it, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He was one of the lay magistrates, I believe, who was kept on after the provincial court was created. I was in the Fraser Valley, and I, I worked with some of them. And I, I believe he was one, too. I don't know when he uh, actually retired. And the feeling was that, as far as I'm concerned, he knows as much about the law as the lawyers who were being appointed to the provincial court. One of the things that fascinates me so much about this chapter is, first, he writes so eloquently about in court, the magistrate in court, and coming across it for the first time, you can take it at face value. It's very well written. He's so articulate. He explains things very well. And then you realize, well, maybe there's really no escape from this job, because then he writes about out of court. And like you say, all these people coming to see him, he might be out in the garden. He's here at above tide much of the time when people are coming by with their out of court problems for him, as you've described, for him to help them with. 
And when we get into the out-of-court section of Measure of the Year in the month of May, I'm going to read a bit here. He says, Most out-of-court work grows from family relationships, errant sons and daughters, irresponsible husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. Most of these affairs start in court as juvenile cases, assault cases, or maintenance cases. Some go on for years quiescent for months at a time and then suddenly in crisis that threatens to bring them to court again or break the family beyond repair. The chance of any straightforward success in such cases is very small. He's almost setting, not limitations, but his expectations are not necessarily all that high, but that does not detract him from the work. He says, marriage is never an easy relationship, and by the time the differences between two people have reached the stage that brings them to court, or even to a magistrate out of court, the real origins of the trouble have long been lost in incidental frictions and are almost impossible to uncover. But some sort of temporary patchwork to hold a family together is often possible, especially when children are involved. And when children are involved every day that a family can be held together in some sort of unity is of value. Sometimes the patchwork, or renewals of it, hold until the children leave school and go out on their own. Then with the pressure and urgency of the children removed, man and wife often find they can get along quite comfortably. And he says, though most of this work is unofficial, and with only a vague shadow of some inadequate law, Held in the background, it is probably the most valuable work a magistrate ever does. It's essentially him saying the stuff he does out of court is more important than what he does in court when we tend to think of a magistrate as a man behind the bench. That's true. And he's quite forthright about that. Much more can be done informally sometimes. And, and he explains that really well. And, and if you can hold a family together uh, for another year or whatever it may be, that's well worth doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be done in a structured way. This is what surprises me, as they say, he recognized this, that it could be helpful and often was helpful in, in very difficult situations. And that's what the provincial court is now doing in a formal structured way. You might say that maybe somebody in the provincial court read measure of the year and said, okay, here's, here's the answer. <laughs> maybe so. Now, a lot of measure of the year, I find I have to keep reminding myself, hang on, this was written more than 70 years ago. It still stands up, does it, from a, a, a legal point of view? Oh, I would say so. Oh, absolutely. It's just that the legal system has become more structured, more formal than, than back in the days of magistrates, or lay magistrates. And I mean, lay magistrates were appointed from local communities because of the sparse population in the province. And they needed volunteers, and uh, that, that's what they got. And, and certainly with Mr. Haig Brown, they got the best they could. And it was very informal, too, because magistrate's court was generally known as police court. It was usually held in a police station. Oftentimes, one of the local constables would drive to the house of the magistrate and give him a lift down to the courtroom. And the police officer might very well stand or sit through the court proceedings and so on. And in case the magistrate had a question or could assist in some way. It was very informal, but 
around the time, about, we're almost 50 years ago now, almost difficult to imagine that that much time has gone by, for me at least. The law didn't change, but the structure that administered it did. For example, the lay magistrates were uh, discontinued. The court was established by a statute. Legally trained lawyers were appointed as judges. Jurisdiction was expanded. When I first went on the bench in 79, small claims court, the maximum claim was $500. When I left, it was $30,000. And I think now it's $35,000 for some things, not everything. So that, that happened. And concurrently with professionalization, if you will, of the, of the provincial court, the county court, which was superior to the magistrate's courts, was discontinued. The judges were merged into the Supreme Court. In sorting these matters out, the county court disappeared. Much of the work that the provincial court did was taken over by the county court. Not jurisdiction-wise so much, but you had a situation where the provincial court, like it now is, handles something like high 90% of all cases in Canada in each province. And of course, over a period of time, assumed some of the financial jurisdiction that the county court had had and became a much busier place too. Now, when we talk about the out-of-court work, which Haig Brown considered to be the most important, it sounds as though there was a need for a lot of creativity, the ability to work with all different types of people, the ability to hopefully find solutions, albeit maybe some of them very temporary, in all sorts of different cases, working with the people themselves. Is there almost a similarity there with what we would now call restorative justice? Yeah, certainly. The court proceedings, certainly in the provincial court and the superior courts too, have adopted a much stricter professional approach to these things. If you can talk to people without the threat, if you will, it's not a threat, but of judicial consequence, you're way ahead of the game. But of course, that doesn't happen now because people rush out to see a lawyer when they, when they think they need one. And so you get a situation which probably overall is better because you've got somebody who knows the law and the, and the rules of procedure and so on and, and so forth, which, which the magistrates didn't always have. Whereas in days gone by, you'd have searched the man out in his garden. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> in some ways, you'd have to think along the lines of that being another example of Haig Brown essentially being ahead of his time, uh, working a, re a restorative justice type of system long before it was officially called restorative justice. Oh, yes. Oh, for sure. It, that's what so surprised me about his recounting of out-of-court work in Measure of the Year. You wouldn't get away with that now, but you are getting away with it because it's being incorporated into the system for these uh, pretrial things and uh, you know, and sort of painting a picture for the people who are involved that uh, this matter proceeds, you know, you you might not uh, succeed uh, with success in it. This could happen, that could happen. Family matters uh, lend themselves really well to these kind of informalities. And now, for example, um, there's a table of uh, financial table. If it's established, you're talking to somebody over a desk, 
if this goes to trial and it's found that you have such and such an income, we can tell you exactly how much you're going to pay according to this table. Those, those kind of things didn't exist back in the day. But you could get and deliver the same message, you know, that if it goes to court, this is going to happen. And back in those days, if you were to be at all good at it, you had to be, I would think, extremely creative because you weren't doing a one-person job. You did not have a whole court stenographer and all these, the crown and whatnot, working beside you and behind you. You were all there was. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Did being the son of a policeman, growing up in a police station, driving with your father to see Haig Brown on court matters, did that in some way help to start Ian McAlpine down the road to, well, I guess, first media and then into law? Well, it wasn't perceptible. I, I was very interested in newspapering, and I didn't really realize it till we moved up the coast. But I would say that I got more interested in law from working in Vancouver. It wasn't in Vancouver all that long. I moved there in 61, and uh, in 62, between May of 62 and May of 63, my office wasn't in the Sun Tower. It was in the courthouse at 800 West Georgia. So I rarely went into the uh, newspaper office. I enjoyed covering the courts, and, you know, there was just no need to, to go to the the Sun office. What happened was the um, seizure of the BC Electric by the Bennett government, WAC Bennett government, was hotly contested, as you know. It was during that one year that this trial went on, and it included a number of top Vancouver lawyers for various parties. It was somewhat unusual in that Chief Judge Sherwood Lett sat with an assessor. There were two sitting on the bench, and that was to have a financial person explain things to the judge. It was very difficult to, to follow this trial from a reporter's point of view. You could waste hours and days in there and not understand what was going on. And so I used to pop in and uh, interview these lawyers every once in a while, every few days, and say, you know, what, what's happened here now? It, it's newsworthy. What can, what can I do with this stuff? So it was, it was just a, a sort of a long-distance uh, connection that I had with these people. But everybody except the, uh, the ME of the Sun, who assumed I'm in there every day just absorbing all of this stuff, when it came judgment time, I was in Victoria, so they brought me back to do the story, uh, the judgment story. I was able to do that because the, the court officials had done a, a very good job in putting all the documents and everything together and page number this for that and, and so on. I have right here, you can't see it, but I have the very last buff extra. The buff was the last of several editions, the street edition of the sun every day. So they brought me back, and I, I have this frame because of its uh, the fact that uh, newspapers aren't like that anymore. It was quite an experience, and I more or less got interested in law, but through that one year down at West Georgia. Full disclosure, in a past life, I was an ink-stained wretch, as we used to call ourselves, in print, and did some time in radio as well. 
I never held the, as we called it, the cops and courts beat. Because if you covered one, you covered the other. Clearly, they were linked. Mm -hmm. I did have occasion to cover the odd provincial court case here and there. And I never enjoyed the courtroom. It's another world in there. I don't have to tell you this. <laughs> this place where we revisit tragedy, where the worst in human nature is dragged out into the harsh light of day, where horrible stories are told, and where victims and perpetrators are publicly exposed. It always made me extremely uncomfortable, even though I knew that it was an endless supply of stories. If you were, you know, if you're going in there to try and to fill a newspaper sort of thing. Yeah. And maybe that was less so at a higher level of court. But when I think back now, I think to have been a sitting judge would be to be exposed to this at a level, make mine look like a picnic day in, day out. What sort of a toll does that take on you? It's subtle. Not all cases are difficult, but certainly some are. And the cruel things that people can do to one another wears on you. I have one example of a fellow that I worked with in Abbotsford who, in a family case, decided to relax the visitation of the dad, who lived in Coquitlam, I believe, so that the uh, two girls could go and visit him certain times and the first weekend that my friend made that order the father killed his daughters you don't uh, I don't know how you you live with that no but the responsibility whether you like it or not the responsibility has to as they say the buck stops here somebody has to make that decision yeah that has to wear on you yeah. obviously that particular case yeah and i and i bring this up because i i think of this in in terms of i i did some mathematics and i see if, if i look at it you started in law school in 71 uh, you retired as a provincial court judge in 2004 that gives us roughly 33 34 years and we've got Hague brown serving as a magistrate from 1940 to 1975. That's a career in as a magistrate of roughly the same length. And I just wonder what sort of stamina does it take to hold and carry that kind of responsibility for such a long time? It wears you down, certainly, you know, over time. You don't really realize uh, that it's doing so, but the role of the judge or the magistrate before the judges, you thought were sitting there listening and making a decision at the end of the day. True, that's what you did. But what people don't know, and, and sometimes even judges don't realize the extent of, of it, you're making decisions all day long, not final decisions, but rules of evidence. No, that's a, not admissible. Yes, you can ask that question. Yes, you know, and then, and then you have what uh, what you've heard of, uh, voir dires, to determine admissibility and so on. So that's a trial within a trial. So there's all of these things going on during the course of a single trial 
Mr. Hague Brown describes that very, very beautifully in, his, in the book, too. So, yes, day, day in and day out. And then there were times back in the day, in the early days of the provincial court, in some jurisdictions, you weren't all that busy. Uh, you might, for whatever reason, there was nothing scheduled or somebody didn't show up for their trial and, and uh, whatnot. And so you, you'd be doing a half day's work. But then when the provincial court developed, as it has always done, it's an evolution, tempted to call it a revolution, but that's not what you call courts. These things have all evolved. And then they, so they got to a situation where they appointed judicial case managers. They were just that. They scheduled the cases. If a matter was to go over to another day, we would refer that case and that person to a judicial case manager. And they would avoid all the nonsense of what used to go on in court when you had two lawyers saying, oh, I can be there that day and the other one can't and vice versa. and You waste time and so on. And it had the effect of really increasing the efficiency and the use of, of the judge's time because you might finish a case at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and think you were going to go home. But the case manager would come in and say, oh, by the way, we're moving a case from court two over to court one, and you're it. So you, you didn't go home. <laughs> but all for the better. And in the case of Hague Brown, going home did not necessarily offer an escape. No, because somebody followed him home and, and wanted to talk about how uh, they got beaten by their spouse the day before. <laughs> it's hard to imagine how you could stay that involved that intensely for such a long period of time, but I can only assume he thrived on it. Yes, I, I suppose so. It stands out in measure of the year, so much of the rest of the book is about, as we say, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. We see the nature, we see the river, we see the kids, and we see him talk about writing. But this chapter, May, stands out kind of as, oh, this is what else I do. And it feels like it kind of takes you away from Above Tide, although... As it turns out, it happens at above tide as well. But it's kind of, okay, here's what I do when I'm working. And it feels to me as though, it's not that it doesn't belong, but it is. there's a definite feel to this chapter that is not really there in any of the others. True enough, of course, totally separate sphere that he's traveling in. That's one of the things that quite close to the chapter, uh, that portion that I read at the outset, as he points out that, Probably the loneliest times that he's ever experienced were his court times. And he tells you why. He says, you know, you'd think that he would be used to loneliness because writing books is lonely work. It's your own thoughts that you're putting on paper. But nothing's irrevocable, he says, because your book goes to the proofreaders and if he's got a problem, he can go talk to his friend Joe and say, what do you think about this and that and the other thing? And nothing's irrevocable until it's in print. But as he points out, in magistrate's work, it's irrevocable. You don't go and ask somebody, if you were hearing this case, what would you do? That's a taboo. He recognizes that some of his 
different work is very similar, i.e. is writing and is judging. But there is that one big difference. It's irrevocable. I mean, you can be appealed, but you have to make the decision all by yourself. Which can only add to that weight of responsibility. Yes, yeah. And he makes the point that perhaps folks don't really realize is that the lay magistrate was the lowest on the court totem pole. And why? It was a volunteer job. He was a stipendary magistrate, which, of course, involves a stipend or pay. But he doesn't have any assistance or very much assistance from the legal profession in lay magistrate's court back in the old days. Oftentimes, the crown prosecutor was the police officer. As he points out in one passage, it might have been the police officer that arrested this accused that he's now prosecuting in police court, giving the magistrate a ride downtown to get to his job. Not a healthy situation. He makes the point that, which is not one you think of very often, he's the lowest uh, person in the judicial realm without much legal assistance through lawyers and so on in trials. But one of the more serious cases in law is murder. The decision in that case, if the accused applies for a jury trial, is all lay people. The judge doesn't make a decision as to guilt or innocence. The judge might say, well, this is the rule of evidence here and the rule of evidence there. He will charge the jury at the end and say, well, you can consider this, you can consider that, you might want to think about this and so on. Provides guidance. But the ultimate decision is just as if you had 12 Haig Browns sitting in the jury room. You're the final decision maker. That's irrevocable too. And yet, at some point down the road, I'm thinking round about the time that Haig Brown finished his time uh, as a magistrate, the role itself was disappearing. Yes, and I don't have the figures, but in some of the larger cities, Victoria, Vancouver, the magistrate may well have been a lawyer. It was a full-time job and so on, and that wasn't the purpose of the lay magistrates. It was just to enable people to get before a court if they had to uh, without having to go too far from home. And, and of course, too, and, and Haig Brown points this out as well, the judge presiding at a murder trial with a jury might very well provide valuable guidance. And the lawyers who are there are also doing that for the judge. And he had none of that. The mind boggles when I read some of this stuff, and I think, how can you expect it's too much to ask of one person is what my reaction is can you really expect one person to do this let alone do it for 35 years <laughs> that's right besides other things writing 20 some odd books and so on indeed where did he find the time <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah i wouldn't want to make out that the magistrate's job in those days was uh, high pressure they dealt with petty thefts, common assaults, that kind of thing, uh, summary conviction offenses, they were called, traffic violations, and so on and so forth, which again have been removed virtually to tribunals out of provincial court, too. They're handled elsewhere because of their minor nature. They really were not all that difficult. But every once in a while, of course, there was, too. And 
So I'm sure they had some easy days, too. In reading his experiences in the outer court, it seems to me that he at least doubled his workload by entertaining these matters. Ian, it's been fascinating talking to you about this, and I thank you for sharing your wealth of information about not only the legal system itself, but of course, your personal connection with Haig Brown and and Campbell River and, and Measure of the Year. Is there some other piece of this, this month of May, and Haig Brown as a magistrate that, that we haven't touched on where you'd like to go? I don't think so. You know, he's provided a blueprint for anybody in the legal business and appearing in courts about what the issues are, uh, not specific, every case is different, but how overall he has to conduct himself, like he says, when he was sworn in, he was sworn in to apply the law equally to the rich and the poor. Well, you can read also that he's got various views about laws that don't always accord with that. He describes good laws and bad laws, but he bows to the law enacted because he's not considering it himself, but some wise council or parliament or legislature is a number of people. And he bows to their wishes and imposes the law. But what he does do to, hopefully other magistrates and judges do too, he deals with these matters with his head. But when it comes to a decision, particularly with sentencing, he bows to his heart. And so he has to find this person guilty, but he doesn't have to sentence him to 10 years or something because of upbringing or other circumstances that have brought pressure to bear on this accused person. I think he used the phrase head to heart somewhere in the book, and that's one way around some of these things he disagreed with. One of the big weapons, if you want to call them a weapon, that they had in those days was an interdict list, and a lay magistrate could place people on this interdict list. You, you cannot possess or use alcohol. And uh, that was a, a really useful provision in the law because usually the people that probably were most vulnerable to the law were bootleggers, alcoholics, and so on. That's the worst thing that they, they wanted to encounter. So they had some flexibility here where they had ways of perhaps skirting a bit the hard law by dealing with the consequences of their offense in a more compassionate, empathetic way. Indeed, there's an impression that he gives, irreverent might not be the right term for it, but he describes the law, he treats the law as a very imperfect entity, as as only it can be. There's no way to have the perfection that some would hope for. And yet he realizes that it's not perfect. He emphasizes that it's not perfect. And it's working within that not perfect system that makes his wisdom that much more valuable. Right on. Yeah. Ian, I thank you so much. I've taken a lot of your time here. (laughs) But I I thank you for for sharing your thoughts with us. And you have added immeasurably uh, to measure of the year. And I thank you for that. Well, I've enjoyed it very much and uh, tolerating my lengthy explanations and so on. (laughs) But it's really brought back a lot of memories for me uh, that I 
haven't had occasion to brush off for many, many years. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, reflections on home, family, and a life fully lived. You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.